Hi there, esteemed audience, and welcome to another episode of Middle Grade Ninja. I'm your host, Rob Kent. As you know, I'm the author of Banneker Bones and the Giant Robot Bees, uh, which is available now as a paperback and audiobook, or the ebook is free. Free to download whenever you're listening to this, wherever fine ebooks are sold. Uh, once you're hooked on the series, stick around. I've got two more books so far uh, that you'll have to pay money for, but you're going to have a good time. Uh, as we draw closer to Halloween, it seems uh, an appropriate time to tell you about my super secret pen name, Robert Kent, under which I've written some horror novels for older readers, such as my young adult novel, All Together Now, a Zombie Story. That's perfect reading for this October weather. Uh, you might also check out Pizza Delivery or the five-volume serial horror novel, The Book of David, uh, which is a long tale about an atheist who purchases a haunted house that then begins to give him religious visions involving flying saucers. It's a good time, and if you're curious about that, you can get The Book of David, Chapter 1, the first installment, by Robert Kent as an e-book to download for free wherever fine ebooks are sold, whatever you're listening to this, or if you just check the back catalog toward the start of quarantine, I did an audiobook recording for free. Uh, so you can hear me read the Book of David chapter one to you, and then once you're hooked on the series, uh, continue with two, three, four, and five on your own. Um, this week, I went ahead and I got voting out of the way. Um, here in Indiana, it took me how about an hour and 15 minutes, hour and a half, I don't remember which, uh, to go in an early vote. And that was a little bit freaky because I have been, uh, as much as possible, working from home, uh, getting uh, food and things delivered, trying to avoid large crowds. Um, but for this election, it was worth the risk. Everybody wore a mask. I was a little bit too nervous to read, but I took my Nintendo Switch Lite and I uh, played Skyrim for, you know, an hour, hour and 15 minutes, hour and a half, whatever it was. Uh, a little Skyrim, a little voting, and then it's done. I don't have to worry about, did I do my part? I absolutely did. I got my vote in for Joe Biden and Kamala Harris. Uh, and in the meantime, I will continue to encourage others to vote in this election because it just it couldn't be more important. This is the most important election, certainly in my lifetime and I think the country's lifetime. Uh, so if you haven't yet, make a plan to vote. Don't wait until Election Day. The closer we get, the uh, harder and it will be to vote, the more obstacles I expect to be thrown up to people trying to vote. Uh, so get in there, vote early, uh, see if there's still time to vote by mail, figure out a plan, vote. Public service announcement over. Let's talk about Marcella Pixley. That's today's guest. Uh, we have all kinds of fun this episode. Uh, she's got multiple sayings that I've uh, jotted down as I edited this that uh, I'm going to be repeating and uh, trying to pass off as my own in future uh, writing workshops that I teach. Uh, should we talk about... Um, writing uh, her story, Trowbridge Road, uh, and in uh, 1983, where it's set, which is part of her lifetime and, and researching your own lifetime and trying to separate yourself from events that happen to you, uh, from events that are going to happen in your art and that needs to become a form of expression rather than a form of self-history. Uh, we talk about editing and killing your darlings. There's uh, some store talk of ghosts and flying saucers. Uh, all kinds of great stuff. And episode 92 starts right now. Marcella Pixley, welcome to the show. How are you this evening? I'm great. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so happy to be here. 
Well, thank you for being here. I am uh, absolutely thrilled to chat with you. I have absolutely loved uh, Trowbridge Road, which we were just discussing. I've been mispronouncing as Trowbridge Road, <laughs> but it is Trowbridge Road, and it is available uh, October 6th, right? Yes. Yep. So fine retailers everywhere. Uh, and I should uh, make a promise real quick to esteemed audience. I have it on good authority from you that you've got not only an amazing flying saucer story, but several great ghost stories. Now, we don't want to talk about them yet. We just want to let esteemed audience know that that's there. Is and this a thing? This is, like, this is like a ninja thing? Oh, I ask everybody about flying okay. saucers. <laughs> I, I, I just can't even wait to tell the story about the flying saucer. I can't wait. <laughs> We will we'll save it. We'll we'll talk writing and publishing, and that way, esteemed audience knows that as they're enjoying they the conversation, that uh, it'll be like Christmas Eve, and that'll be the Christmas morning present. Because <laughs> it's a true story. It's a true story. Fantastic. Well, okay. let's start with uh, just an overview of your background. I don't summarize other people's biographies, and I don't summarize other people's books because I will make a mess of both, <laughs> and I wouldn't make you uh, listen to me do it either. Uh, so if you would just give a steamed audience an overview of your background. Um, you mean my own background or the background of, of the book? Uh, both. Sure. Both. Why not? Okay. Um, well, first I'll talk about the book. How about, so okay. um, Trowbridge Road takes place in 1983 um, in Newton Highlands, Massachusetts, which is where I grew up. Um, Trowbridge Road is about a girl named Junebug, who's 11 years old who is living in a family that is really shaking. Her father has just died of AIDS. In 1983, it's the beginning of the AIDS epidemic. So it's just the beginning of people understanding about what AIDS was. And her mother is grieving and also experiencing really intense obsessive compulsive disorder so that she is really scared of the germs that might be outside coming into the house and um, harming her and her daughter. And it's this fear that really is making um, life difficult for Junebug because it's hard for her to express herself and um, it's hard for her to be her own strong self when her mother is um, suffering in this way. So the book is about how Junebug learns to be brave through a friendship that she makes with a boy in her neighborhood and how her imagination allows her to um, escape from some of the sadness that's taking place in her house. So it's about how we don't always know in when we're growing up in a neighborhood, um, just what people are grappling with in their own lives, in their own homes. Um, and so this is where it comes into um, my own background, which is that when I was growing up, um, my mother was depressed often. My dad was actually quite sick from the time I was very young um, until quite recently with um, heart disease and kidney disease and was, um, not, was not thought to be um, someone who would be living a very long time. And so we were all really worried about him um, when, when I was growing up. And that worry developed into my own um, diagnosis of having obsessive compulsive disorder, which I was um, probably expressing already at around age nine, but wasn't diagnosed until my teen years. So um, Trowbridge Road is kind of my soul story, and it's about how you, um, how it is worthwhile to be brave enough to tell the things that you might be more likely to keep a secret. 
And so telling people what's going on in your family and in your life can help save you and keep you strong. Soul story. I haven't heard that that term before. I'm going to steal it. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> it is. It's. I feel out of all the books that I've written, I think this book is the one that's closest and dearest to my heart. So I've got lots of uh, questions for you about the book. So let's just uh, get right to them. In fact, uh, uh, you have modestly not mentioned, but I'm going to mention uh, that uh, Trowbridge Road uh, is already a junior library guild selection. Uh, yes. Named uh, Best Book of the Year by, is it Pernell Rip? Yes. And uh, now you just uh, recently got announced that you're on the long list for the National Book Award. It's amazing. <laughs> it's not what I, I was not expecting it at all, and I'm so happy. I think the lesson that esteemed audience should take away from that is, is pursue your soul book. It's working out. <laughs> <laughs> I hope so. Um, question I wanted to ask uh, about the, well, several questions I, I wanted to ask about the book, because this is uh, utterly a, a charming story. It is, um, which esteemed audience doesn't need me to tell them that. They just heard it's on the long list. It's, it's established <laughs> that it's a charming story. Uh, but it's it, although there are plenty of sad things within it, and Junebug has my sympathy, you know, right off the bat. Uh, it is not a morbid book or an overly sad book. There are lots of laughs along the way. There are good times to be had. Um, so, how much uh, research did you do about uh, 1983 Massachusetts town? Given that you lived, this is your soul book. You've lived a lot of these. Uh, experiences not these exact experiences but similar experiences can you believe that 1983 is being um called historical fiction now <laughs> that's what they're they're calling trobridge road historical fiction because 1983 <laughs> was so long ago um i did some research on um on music in 1983 to remind myself about sort of what the sensibilities and styles were um and i did some reading about the early um the the early part of aids research and um, what people knew about aids in 1983 right around the time that the virus was becoming known for the um for common people in america and so that's that's what most of my research was about have you i don't know if this was 83 or maybe 84 of you i'm sure you've heard the uh, infamous uh ronald reagan press secretary his administration's press secretary uh, with the conference where the, the, the reporters are joking back and forth with the reporters in uh, most very 1983 homophobic fashion. Um, and they're accusing each other of, of having the, the disease and really making light of it. I, I haven't seen it, but I'm not at all surprised because um, there was so much homophobia involved in the um, in the AIDS scare, especially in the in the early 80s that um, that it became a virus that had to do with stigma and um, and people's prejudices. So I'm not I'm not surprised by what you're saying, although it's sad to hear. Oh yeah, no, it's a, it, it was just awful. Um, it's um, uh, it's a lot of parallels as I as I was reading this. Well, well, the 2020 is the year for this book to come out. Uh, we're going to be talking about um, um, uh, overly cautious reactions to. Uh, mostly unknown uh, virus that's that's moving through the population. How much uh, do you see parallels uh, between oh the COVID nineteen hysteria? I I never would have 
expected there to be parallels. And when I read, when I wrote this book, I mean, I knew there were parallels in terms of people needing to learn how to be more, um, more accepting of each other. And I knew there were parallels that had to do with people having the problem of making other people into outsiders and not, and not, um, and not being inclusive in their, in their neighborhoods and in their, in their families. But I was not expecting that Trowbridge Road was, would come out during a time when a new virus had come on the scene. Um, I mean, AIDS was the new virus of the eighties, but now here we are in 2020. And, um, even though I wrote Angela Jordan, Junebug's mother, as a piece of fiction, um, what she experiences in her fears about infection um, really have become a lot of our realities. And so it's it's very odd, um, but um, I feel like it, there's sort of a mirroring that's going on right now. So I guess that's that's um, a good thing for the book because it gives the book a nice place to launch into where people need to hear this, these stories and to, people are experiencing these kinds of fears. Yes, Angela, what I say, Karen, for Freudian. You did, <laughs> yeah, you did. But I was uh, thinking, did he mean Angela? <laughs> um, what was I going to say? I, the, the question's gone right out of my head, so I have to think up a better one. Um, no, no, I was uh, just uh, laughing as I was reading about Angela, because I know, obviously, having the, the benefit of being uh, later further along that some of the, the a lot of the uh, drastic measures she's taking to protect the household from AIDS are absolutely through the through the tops, uh, just crazy and, and would have been honestly probably in 1983. But she would be fine in 2020. That That is the approach. She I takes. know. And I have to admit, I, I want to say something about my experience with OCD. So when I was growing up, um, I was I, my my obsessive thoughts had mostly to do with catastrophe, so I wasn't sort of your classic obsessive germaphobe that um, people sort of imagine when they think of obsessive compulsive disorder. Mine had more to do with having a pain and convincing myself that I had cancer or um, you know thinking a lot about death or something like that. So that, that was very difficult for me. But since um, Corona has happened, I understand and have experienced the kind of obsessive compulsive feelings that um, that that I think are incredibly triggering for anybody. But for for those of us who have OCD, um, this time of Corona is incredibly, I can only speak for myself, it's incredibly difficult. And so I myself understand disinfecting a countertop and walking outside and somebody yelling or singing or screaming and like thinking about the billowing virus coming out of their mouth and how far away do I need to be? These are things that seemed really extreme with Angela and that, I mean, she takes it too far, but not not so differently than, than many of us are are experiencing life right now. I was making a, a run for uh, groceries, oh, maybe a month ago, and I, and I think I'm done with that because the CDC just revised their guidelines to say that six feet uh, social distancing is no longer enough. Masks are still uh, effective, they're saying, but, you know, uh, th th they've said a lot of things over the last year, so <laughs> we'll see. You know, And I'm a teacher uh, back in the classroom, so this is something we're 
we're amending and, and dealing with as teachers all the time right now. You teach uh, eighth grade language arts, so you're in you're in class every day. I am, I am. We've we're we're um, we're hybrid at the moment, um, so we're teaching um, in cohorts that alternate in and out of school. And um, if the numbers continue to be good in our town, um, we'll be going full in in the next three weeks, which is scary, but we'll see what happens. Oh, fingers, fingers crossed. Yeah. <laughs> um, and we're going to talk more about your your time as a language arts teacher because I know that's got to have informed your time as a. Well, you know, we're here. Um, how does uh, how does that inform your writing books for young people? I know that you're leading a, a young people critique group as well. Yeah, I, I have been, although we are not yet figured out how to do it now virtually. Um, so we'll see whether there's a way that we can bring it back into the into what we're doing this year. But I've always run a group called Writers Guild that meets on Fridays. And um, it's fifth through eighth graders who wanna become writers who come and bring their writing and read it out loud to each other and give critique and community. And it's one of my very favorite parts of being a teacher. Well, I'm gonna go ahead and just say, having never met any of those children, they sound cutting ab above the rest. That's- <laughs> They're <laughs> the best. They are. <laughs> they're all they're always year after year they're just incredibly wonderful people and so inspiring so what does that uh, experience both teaching about literature and working with uh, writers who are your you know your target audience i assume um for for your young adult novels how does that influence your writing that's a great question um i think that one of the things that um, one of the ways it influences my writing is that um, as a teacher, I can see that um, every kid that I teach has a story um, that nothing is cut and dry and that the time of young adulthood is messy um, and kids need stories that help them know that they're not alone. And so um, there's some wonderful middle grade and YA literature that's been coming out um, the last several years that are own voices stories that tell the stories that have traditionally been silenced so that kids can find themselves in those books um, when they haven't seen themselves in, in pages before. Um, and so I've been teaching some of those books and putting them in the hands of students and also thinking about as a writer, what kinds of stories do I have to tell that I think that would help kids not feel so alone. And Trowbridge Road had a lot to do with that kind of that kind of question. Like a kid like me who had who grew up in a in a complicated family with some mental health issues, who um, might have felt like they were alone, needs to know that there are other people who are making it, who are um, who are struggling as well. So with a story like this, that is so, it's your soul story so close to your 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 own, uh, you know, this is, again, not an autobiography, but how do you separate what actually happened to you, the the actual history with, you know, you're, you're creating a work of art here. Um, you want us to, to come away with a, with a definite thematic uh, impression. I, I assume, maybe maybe I'm reading too much into it. Maybe it's just a story. And then I, <laughs> I'm putting no, it's my heart. <laughs> Um, well, how do I draw the line? 
Yeah, well, how, um, how do you how do you separate yourself and, and your personal experiences enough to not get in your way when you're when you're making the hard decisions of what what action needs to happen for the book? I, I think that what's true about the book has to do with emotion. So um, what's true about the book has to do with Junebug's hunger to be nurtured by her mother. Um, it has to do with a desire to express herself when she's feeling held back. So those are the things that are true. But the rest of what happens in the story is what the characters need to discover. So there's sort of like a, a setting that is grounded in reality. Newton Highlands, what it was like in 1980, um, what my neighborhood was like, what it felt like to walk down the street. All of those things are in the book that are true. But what they do is they just kind of lay out I don't know, I'm thinking about records laying out a groove. Like they just kind of lay out a, a like a a track that the that the needle can go around and the story can get told and the rest of it is fiction. So I feel like the the characters drive the the story and um and the the part about it that's true is how I know I'm getting to the right stuff is is if it feels like the real story, if it feels like truth even if it's fiction. Does that make sense? I think it does, and I'm definitely <laughs> feeling that uh, metaphor with the uh, the record player with the, the groove. record player with the groove. <laughs> yes, Mwah. that's that's going to my next uh, workshop. <laughs> um, well, I assume that this is a story that uh, you couldn't have written in 1983, maybe not even in the 90s or the early 2000s. That that you had to have some distance from in order to be able to approach it, not objectively, um, not necessarily, but uh, with enough. A distance that you can you can put the book out there um, without uh, without um, well, I don't know what the what the penalty would be for putting too much of your personal story in there, but um. <laughs> well, it's 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 a story that um, that a lot of people need to hear because there are a lot of June bugs out there. There are a lot of kids right now, and have always been a lot of kids who need to know that they're not alone that that um life isn't perfect and the adults who raise us aren't perfect and um sometimes what we need is not what we get in our own homes um so those are things that are that are always true unfortunately but that's why we need to have books about that well i assume that uh, if we could put a book in a time machine uh, and send it back to 1983. 1983, I'm for sure, it would be a DeLorean. I think that may be two years after. <laughs> Definitely. Uh, <laughs> but if you could send it back to yourself and you could read this as a, as a teenager, um, what do you think that that experience would have done for you? Oh, I would have loved it because it would have let me know that um, that there was somebody else like me out there. Um, I really loved fantasy and science fiction as a, as a young adult. Um, and I would have been drawn to the magical, realistic parts of Trowbridge Road. Um, Junebug has an incredible imagination and her friendship with Ziggy, um, Ziggy Carlo helps her to sort of harness her own belief in magic and in her own power. And um, the magical elements in the book that come from their make-believe world um, would have been something that I would have really recognized myself in. Um, but I also feel like um, 11 year old me would have really liked the fact that Junebug is taken care of, even though things um, aren't easy for her. And she does have 
love and support and she does find her own courage. And I would have really liked hearing that story. Well, other than you back uh, as a teacher, who, who would you say is the ideal reader for this? I couldn't uh, decide for certain if this was middle grade or young adult or some happy combination thereof, but I'm uh, well past either of those age groups <laughs> and, and very much enjoyed it. Who was who, who the ideal reader for this? I think everybody is the ideal reader for this book. Um, it's It's being marketed as middle grade, and so I guess the ideal reader is 10 and up. Um, but I would be really comfortable putting it in the hands of um, middle school readers and high school readers and adults as well. So hopefully it speaks to, um, to many different levels. I thought that Candlewick, who's my um, my publisher, I thought they were really wonderful in that they were willing to take this, even though it didn't fit completely neatly into one age genre, um, that they believed in the story as a middle grade story. and um, but I think that it speaks for older readers as well. Oh, it's working out for them. Good, good, good looking. Yeah, out. so far. <laughs> um, and I wanted to, well, um, a few different questions. I did want to ask you um, about the descriptions and the prose throughout. Um, because back when I, I, I wrote reviews, uh, I would put all my favorite passages listed. And this would have been a, an impossible book to review because I love all the passages. Thank you. <laughs> so I, uh, how much time, how long did it take you to write this book? And then how much time are you spending on your prose? And how are you creating these? <laughs> just, just, oh, my God, highlight the whole thing. It's all beautiful. Thank you. Thank you. Um, so how long did it take? Well, that's kind of a complicated question with this book. So um, this book has gone through many different iterations and um, it's been a number of years that I've been trying to figure out sort of where this book belongs. And um, and so there were a few years where I was trying to figure out whether Trowbridge Rose Road was a story for adults or a story for children. Um, and uh, so that was a number of diff a number of years. And once I found Candlewick Press and once I found my editor, Liz Bicknell, um, and she's this incredible, wise, knowledgeable, brave woman who knows how to get a story out of a stone. <laughs> it wasn't a stone, but she really knew how to help me um, carve this story. Um, it took by the from the time that. Um, Liz Bicknell took the book to um, when we were ready to, for publication. It was about a year and a half once 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 I found a home for the book. Just how long did did you had you spent writing it prior to that? Um, well, I um probably around three years in different drafts of it. So. I mean, all told, I would say that Trowbridge Road took about five years to write, to, to get right, to get it right. And then your question about the, the prose, um, I write really slowly. So um, I usually write a paragraph and then I stop and then I read it out loud um, and then I play with the paragraph and I play inside the paragraph and I think about the sounds and the images and I don't move on to the next one until I'm finished with the first one. So. Um, I know a lot of people in their process have like a messy first draft, but I've always been kind of meticulous in my drafting so that um, so that 
it's right before I move on to the next part. So I write really slowly and I spend a lot of time on those, making the passages sing in the way that I want them to. So do you outline ahead of time so you have a clear track? Do you know where you're going to get to with most of your books or with this one in particular? No, I never do that. <laughs> I wish I did. I think that I would have more books written if I could, if I was that kind of writer. Usually I come, I start off with a question, like what would happen if, um, so with this one is what would happen if a girl who was hungry for being nurtured found herself in a position where she didn't get what she was needing. So like a question about how a person might live their life. And then I create a character that will allow me to explore that question. And so um, Trowbridge Road was born out of that kind of questioning. So what happens, and I maybe, maybe, maybe this never happens, uh, but what happens if you write a scene that you love but doesn't work with the overall plot or needs to be changed later, and you spent the time polishing it, and it's, it's you know, finely tuned. Has it, been, has it been necessarily edited by Liz Beck? No, yet. Um, but um, but you, you spent quite a bit of time on it. Does it just break your heart? Do you put it in a, a folder for another book? What happens? <laughs> Um, it, it, you just have to kill those darlings. You just have to kill them. <laughs> That's um, what Gertrude Stein said. Um, yeah, you just have to, you have to be willing to, if it doesn't work, it just has to go. And it's just part of the process. And so there are scenes that never made it into Trowbridge Road. Um, all of my books have scenes that I worked really hard on that just didn't, didn't make it, but, but that's part of the process. And um, maybe they become, other pieces of writing, but they're definitely part of my learning process. That is a very optimistic way to put that. I'm stealing <laughs> that too. That's three things that are getting stolen. Woohoo! Uh, Steal away. So <laughs> the night is young. <laughs> um, yeah, you, I'm not. I'm not the kind of those things. Or do you, I mean, do they ever see the light of the day? Are they all being saved for the Marcella Pixley Library when that's established? Um. <laughs> No, they just kind of they just kind of go away and they live in my file called old drafts. Um, and so far, I haven't gone back to any of them, actually, because I've gone on to new stories. But maybe someday. I mean, there are some scenes from Ready to Fall that which was my previous book that I really loved that didn't make it into the book. And sometimes I've thought, I wonder if that scene could be the beginning of something else. And who knows? But I just see it as part of the process of, of the book that I'm working on at the time. Doesn't all get used, kind of like a film. I am intimidated by your toughness. I, I don't know that. I... <laughs> no, you just I'm have sorry. to believe it. It's, it's like um, it's like you just have to believe in the process. You have to have faith in the process that you don't always know where it's going to go. Um, it's not always going to go right. There's going to be days where you can't write. Um, there's going to be things that feel right and then end up being not right and you have to take them out. And um, to me, that's just you, that's just kind of part of the magic of it is that you have to believe that you're going to end up somewhere. And um, and if you're lucky, you get there. So what does your uh, typical writing day look like if you're doing a paragraph and you're you're reading it and revising it till it, it sings and then you've got to go and you've got to teach eighth grade and you've got your your your. But on normal times, your critique group, but I assume you have activities outside of, of work and you've got yeah. your, your home. Yep, yep. I, I'm a pretty 
busy person and I'm not a kind of writer who has a typical writing day because I am a full-time teacher and I've got um, an 18, almost 18 year old and a 14 year old at home and, um, and you know, just sort of live my life like everybody lives their lives. So um, I, because I'm not a writer who writes full time, I, I steal moments here and there. So um, when my mind is ready to write, I'll sit down um, in bed or at my desk where I am right now, and I'll take an hour or a half an hour and I'll just play with a paragraph. And then life takes its time and I go off and do the things I need to do. And um, I think luckily my mind I've, has sort of trained itself to be pondering my writing things at the same time that I'm doing other things. And so I think that the, I think that the process is still going um, even when I'm not writing so that when I come back, it's kind of like a sneeze that you really needed to sneeze and um, it comes out quickly and maybe more easily than it would if I had all the time in the world. And I think of it kind of like a jar with pennies. Like you just put a penny in every now and then when you can, when you have the time and um, eventually you'll fill up the jar with pennies and have a book. You are a fountain of beautiful writing <laughs> metaphors. <laughs> I think that instead of teaching my next workshop, I'm just going to play this podcast. I listen to this. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, okay. And something I, I read on your acknowledgments, you thanked your husband, Steve, for reading every draft. Yeah. Um, so how to, I'm going to play this clip for my wife. So she knows what, what uh, quality uh, writing spouses need to do. They need to get in there and, and read every draft. How does that work where you're getting edited Without that, bleeding over into the next day, maybe you overreact because the dishes weren't done. But really what we're talking about is your mean notes about my character last night. Yeah, I, I, I like my husband's in the other room. I, um, Yeah, it, it's not always pretty. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, there were times where I was like, I just wanted you to say you liked it. Just just listen to it and say you liked it. Um. I don't know. I just, I, I appreciate the sounding board. Our family goes on a lot of, um, well, at, in the past used to go on a lot of road trips. And so I often would read drafts of, um, the story to my kids and my husband on road trips. Um, sometimes I'd be writing in the car and they have had a lot of really good advice. And my husband is, he's gotten very good at, um, giving good critique and not taking my, um, not taking my whining. <laughs> so when I get upset and offended, he's he's holds firm and he's usually right. Even so, though I don't always like what he has to say. What writer does like to receive every critique? No. <laughs> so um, other than uh, your family, who else sees the book before? I assume your agent, Victoria Wells Arm, she gets to see it. Uh, before it goes on to Elizabeth, how many other folks? Or do you have a critique partners or... Um, I don't have critique partners, but I have some good friends who are writers. Um, Esther Ehrlich wrote a book called Nest, and she's become a really good friend of mine, and she read several drafts early on. Um, and there have been a couple other people who have read early drafts. Um, I had some sensitivity readers read for the um, the issue of gay life and AIDS in the 1980s um, to help 
me make sure that I was writing realistically and um, not offensively about that time period and that experience. Um, and other than that, and a few other friends who saw early drafts, um, but otherwise it's kind of a lonely process. I'm really lucky to have an incredible agent, Victoria Wells Arms Reed has read also all of the drafts of these stories and um, has just been an amazing cheerleader. So I'm really thankful for that. So um, Victoria, Liz, if you're listening, which I assume you must be, um, you are both invited on the show anytime. I'd be and there's one more person is my former agent, Sally Brady, um, when this book was just starting to get off the ground and she read some of the earliest drafts years and years ago. So anyway, those people are are pretty special to me. So what uh, what does your relationship with with well your working relationship with Liz Bicknell look like after you've gotten the book? You've gone through everything. The family's gone through it. You've got some other people go through. The thing is perfect. Why is she editing at all? Because <laughs> well, it wasn't perfect. <laughs> it's not perfect. She um she was in the experience of working with her was pretty wonderful. Um. I, when she took the book, she, it was clear to me from the first time that I talked to her that she really believed in it, um, that she really understood the heart of this book, and that what she wanted to do, and I remember her saying this the first time I talked to her on the phone, um, that she wanted to help me with the texture of the book. She said that the, st that the story, in order for the story to succeed, it had to have the right texture. And so our, most of our work had to do didn't have to do with ripping the book apart or recreating it. It had to do with finding the heart and um, making sure there was enough joy in the story to balance the sad parts, um, make sure that things weren't so relentless that the book couldn't um, keep you smiling. And so a lot of the work I did with, um, with Liz had to do with pacing, toning some things down, turning some things up. And um, she was incredible in, in helping me to do that. I learned a lot about writing through working with her through this book. Do you remember offhand how, approximately how many drafts you went back and forth on? Not as many as many of my books. Um, and that's one of the ways I knew that she and I were kind of simpatico in our, in our thinking. Um, there were probably three different drafts, maybe three or four different drafts, but each of them, um, each of the changes were very deliberate and straightforward. Like in one of the drafts, um, I worked on the voice, the voices of the characters and Junebug's voice to make sure that Junebug had, um, had a single, way of speaking and thinking throughout the book. Um, and in another draft, we worked on um, the other adult characters that were caregivers because both Ziggy and Junebug have parents that can't provide for them in the way they need. And so they needed outside help, like Ziggy finds Nana Jean who takes him in and Junebug finds her uncle Toby. And so another draft was just devoted to to working on those characters. Um, but each time we went through another draft, the book got tighter and tighter. So how does one uh, 
refine the voice of a character like Junebug, who uh, is she 10 or 11? She's 11. Okay. Yeah. Um, well, Junebug's voice is basically my voice. And that was um, made it easy in some ways, but harder in some ways too. So um, sometimes Junebug sounded like author Marcella Pixley, just letting it rip. And um, those were things that we needed to really um, shave away and and shape. So um, so we made sure that Junebug was eleven, and um, she's a character who's very um, she's she's very observant of her of her environment, and she has kind of a, a poetic sensibility about her, and we made sure that. Um, that that sensibility was the was the mind of an eleven year old girl, and um, and a lot of that had to do with taking a lot of language away from the book, cutting a lot of language that you had carefully uh, poured over and, and and put your soul into paragraph by paragraph. Yeah, but it's okay because then what's left is good. You know, it's all right. It's all right to have too much as long as your your editor doesn't, you know, get sick of it. Is sick of you. But if they can see, if they can help you see your way through that, um, it's kind of like carving a sculpture. You know, you kind of take away the stuff that you don't need, and then what's left is is what's going to make people understand it. That's like metaphor number six or seven that I'm stealing. I know. <laughs> I know. That's doing great. That's that's the stuff we took out of the book. <laughs> well, I've got... I know how else to talk about these things. <laughs> I've got questions for you about your your overall career, and I've got I haven't forgotten my promise that we are definitely going to do that flying saucer story. But before okay. we move on uh, too far from Trubridge uh, Road, I always try to make this show the show that I would like to be on, uh, and a question that's a lazy question, but that I would like to be asked if I were on the show is what is a question that hasn't been asked about uh, of you about Trowbridge Road? that you wish had been asked. And then of course you could, you can answer it. Talk about any aspect you'd like. Oh, what a great question. Um, a question that has not been asked about Trowbridge Road. Hmm. Maybe no one has yet asked me about the ferret. And so I wish that someone would ask me about Matthew the ferret in Trowbridge Road because Ziggy has this pet ferret that is a wonderful character in the story and never gets talked about so far. And I wish someone would say, where did the ferret come from? And um, the ferret came from my ferret that I had as a child. So I had this ferret named Jessica who um, used to sit on my shoulder and, and um, go places with me. She was a really wonderful, smelly creature. And um, she lived in my sock drawer and would kind of ferret around in my in my clothes. And she was stinky. And she was probably one of the reasons why it was hard for me to find friends at, at um, when I was Junebug's age. But um, she was really a pretty great creature. And I, I think that she gives some com um, Matthew is the name of this the ferret in the story. Um, I, I think he gives the story some comic relief. I like the I like the ferret very much. <laughs> <laughs> I enjoyed it it's well. a good ferret. You know, when the copy editor was looking at the manuscript, we learned that that ferrets um, 
can only eat certain kinds of things. And some of the things that my ferret in the early drafts was eating would have been really dangerous for ferrets. So we had to take those out. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good catch. We don't, we don't want Matthew dead. Uh... <laughs> no, you want a live ferret at the end. When, uh, what's your earliest memory of wanting to be a writer? I always wanted to be a writer. Um, I remember in the in probably 1976 when I was about six years old, my father getting a tape recorder, and they were new, newfangled machines, and telling stories on this tape recorder um, into about it. I think it was a story about a little yellow duck and it's looking for its mother or something like that. Um, I really loved this picture book called Frederick by Leo Leone when I was growing up. Um, when I was really little, it was my very, very favorite book. And it was about a mouse who's a poet. And, um, and he climbs up on top of a rock and tells all of the other mice about uh, memories of the springtime in the middle of the winter and is able to warm them with those, with those stories. And um, my dad used to read me Frederick at night as a bedtime story. And I was like, I want to be a poet. If I want to be able to be a person who can say something and put images in somebody's mind. So I always wanted to. And um, I, I wanted it so badly that I used to cry about it as a kid because no one could tell me whether it was really ever going to come true or not. And the idea of maybe growing up and not ever having something published was so painful to me that um, that it was um, it was like continuous angst until I did finally become published. <laughs> just a strong focus on, on what you wanted from the beginning you knew where what you were meant to do and, and where you were headed I think so I mean in my in my middle school um yearbook it says like most likely to write a novel so turned out to be true <laughs> but it took a lot of time and it took a lot of work and when did you know that you wanted to write um, specifically for your younger readers? Or do you know that? Do you, do, you, do you still plan to write for all kinds of readers? Well, I don't know what's coming next, but I do feel like now that I found middle grade, I feel most at home in that than I started. I've, I've written um, three other young adult books, and there's something about middle grade, the middle grade genre that I feel like feels like home to me. So I think I'll probably be staying there for a while. And I used to write poetry and I have a feeling there's more poems poems in there somewhere too. I uh, wanted to ask you because I'm, I'm, I'm a little, little bit jealous. You uh, had the experience, you had some poetry uh, nominated for a Pushcart Prize or was that a short story that was- It was, it was poetry. Uh, and I, I often joke that my writing isn't uh, pushcart prize stuff, but it comes from a place of, of pure jealousy, just seething with greed for a desire for the, the pushcart prize. So what is the experience uh, of, 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 of being nominated for a pushcart prize? And when did that happen for you? Well, it's not as good as it sounds. So I'll just tell you, don't be too, don't be too jealous because it was mostly luck. So... Um, the experience, I, I shouldn't like be dispelling this myth because it seems so wonderful. It is, it is wonderful. It is wonderful. But what happened was that I was in the right place at the right time. I had been um, at University of Tennessee for graduate school and I was writing poetry 
and my poetry mentor's name was Art Smith, and um, he was a judge for the Pushcart Prize that year. And I had just published my first poem, and um, and he nominated me as a way to get my name sort of out into the world, and it did. Um, it was sort of like my first, the first thing I could say, you know, as a writer, is I've been nominated for a Pushcart Prize, but um, but. It was just sort of luck that my um, that my mentor was the judge of of that one of the judges that year, and I was nominated, but I did not get the award. Well, I, I <laughs> nomination that's pretty good. Yeah, I'm still I'm, I'm I still like to I still like to think about that. And you certainly you've won plenty of, of awards uh, since, and are I'm sure about to win uh, a slew of more awards. Maybe. I have to tell you that I was incredibly surprised at the National Book Award long list. I was not expecting it at all, and I'm so happy. <laughs> so, um, when um, what when did you begin working specifically towards your um, uh, towards your first novel? How many novels did you have to write uh, before you you had a, a novel that was worthy of being your debut? Um. Well, as a kid, I wrote I wrote many fantasy novels. So my my bookshelves are filled with notebooks of um, stories that I wrote when I was little, when I was a teenager and younger. Um, but the first novel that I wrote was a short story that I worked on in my senior year in college, um, and it became Freak, the novel that became Freak, um, and that novel was eventually pu published. So the first novel that I worked on seriously was eventually published, but it took 10 years for that first book to be published. It took between graduating from college and being 10 years out of college for that to finally find the right editor. Um, it found Sally Brady, who was my first, first agent, and it found Melanie Krupa, who was my first editor. And that was um, my that was my answer to the crystal ball question of would I ever be published, but it took a long time. So 10 years, was that working on Freak continuously or was that working on it, setting aside and working on something else? It was pretty much continuous. I mean, it would have been a huge amount of my life wasted if that book had never been published. <laughs> 10 years. And um, we sent it to different publishers and it was rejected sometimes it was rejected with a letter of what to do about it and i would take a year making those changes and then it was rejected again and then i would make more changes based on the on the feedback and by the time like eight years had gone by it was this octopus of a story that had all these like tangled parts because of all the people who had given it feedback and um we just ended up having to untangle it and find the story that was in there again. But once that book got published, I was on my way. And we should point out that after 10 years, that Freak was a Kirkus book of the year, right? Yep. What a, what a wonderful thing to happen after, after a decade of work that you have your debut uh, go on to, to such success. So for uh, uh, audience members who, who may be in a somewhat of a similar situation, who may be thinking, well, I've been querying for a year, so not so bad, or I've got 20 years behind me. What uh, kept your faith going over that decade? I mean, I, I didn't, it, it, it shook, just like everybody's does. I mean, I, I, didn't, I didn't know if it was going to work. 
And um, I just kept on trying. I, I think that if Freak hadn't been taken when it did, I might have stopped for a good long while. I mean, I, at a certain point, I had said to myself, it's been 10 years. I have tried so hard. If I'm going to send it out one more time, I'm going to try to find one more an, an agent that'll help me. And if I can't do it, I think I'm going to just teach and put writing aside for a while. Um, so I, I think that I, I think that I was no different than any other writer trying to get published. It's it's just um, it's a roller coaster and you don't really ever know. And you just have to keep on trying. I think the difference between writers who are published and writers who are not is just that the writers who are published kept on trying, keep on trying, and you just have to keep going. There's going to be a lot of lot of pitfalls, and then hopefully, if you're lucky, it works out one of those times. Could you see yourself stepping away from writing? <sighs> not, I can't imagine it at this moment because I have so many stories that I want to write that are in my mind. But I think it could happen that someday I won't, maybe those stories will, will run dry or maybe um, maybe my concentration will not lend itself to being able to write a novel. Like, I don't know, I'm 50. So I hope I have like, you know, 15, maybe 20, 25 more years of book writing in me, but I don't know. Um, my mother and I were talking about it and she was saying, someday you might, you know, you're gonna write until you can't write anymore. She was like, when you're, when you're almost 80 like me, you might discover you, you, you don't have the, the concentration or the energy anymore, but I, I, there's no way to really know. I know that I'm not empty yet. Oh, when the singularity happens and you transfer your conscious into a robot body, you can yeah. go on writing for centuries. That's terrifying. <laughs> <laughs> it was meant to be optimistic. Okay, that's optimistic. <laughs> Hooray, robot bodies. Uh, robot body? You don't have to wear a mask when you go shopping. That's true. I don't, I don't have to have corona. <laughs> that's not you a don't problem. have to disinfect. Nothing. <laughs> It'd be a good deal. Oh. Um, and then, okay, so, um, you, Freak comes out, sets the world on fire, becomes Kirkus Book of the Year. How much easier is it for you then to publish your follow-up? It was much easier. Um, Without Tess was the next book. And, um, that was, um, a book that came straight from my heart. Actually, Without Tess and Trowbridge Road felt similar to me to write. Like both of those books are just books of my heart that that came at, um, came out as what they ended up being when they were published. Um, and um, without tests, just took one year to write and be published. It took one year for the first draft, and then and then it was accepted at Farrar Strauss and then just one year in revision. And Trowbridge Road would have been pretty short in its publication too, if it weren't for Corona, <laughs> which really put us off course because it was coming out last May and then we decided to wait a bit. 
Yeah, I remember going back and forth. We were going to have this conversation back then, and then I, I had to write your publicist and publicist and say, I, I think it's the apocalypse, so I don't know how much I'm going to focus on the podcast for now. Right. And we were thinking the same thing about the release of the book. Like, are there going to be bookstores? We don't know. <laughs> Will people be able to get out of their house to go to a bookstore? Will Amazon still be putting things in people's doorsteps? Um, but luckily things have opened up a bit more and, um, and I think we're in a place where the world is ready to have books again. Well, I saw that you've got uh, on your website, a bunch of virtual events that you're doing and have been doing. And so how does, um, how, how, how are you launching a book here in the time of, 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 of Corona? It's bizarre because I can't go anywhere to do this. Like usually I do readings um, in bookstores and libraries and I visit classrooms and I can't do any of those things this year. I was I was all ready to do um, to speak at NCTE and NCTE was canceled. Um, but luckily a lot of the conferences are finding virtual ways to exist. Like today I spoke at NEIBA um, and um, I was able to talk on a panel of authors virtually. And so it's just kind of a little different, but um, we're making it happen. On, um, on October 6th, when the book comes out, Concord Bookshop in Massachusetts, which is my local independent bookseller, um, are hosting me to have a virtual, um, a virtual reading and signing. And so we're figuring out new ways to get books in people's hands. What uh, for for all those that are also trying to figure out what the heck to do uh, in this upside down world with a launch? What kind of ways have you have you found? Well, um, blogs have been a really big part of the way this book has sort of come out into the world, and that's really thanks to the hard work of my um, of my publicity team at Candlewick Press. So um, I think that they did a really good job getting arcs out to um, different people who have blogs like you with Middle Grade Ninja and um, and people who took an, an early interest in the book and were willing to to interview me or or have me write um, a, an article for their blog or um, I, I think that that's been a big part of it. I've been really grateful for those chances. And I don't want to keep you into uh, the, the wee hours of the night because I know you have been at a conference and you're extremely gracious to to make time uh, for me this evening after what I assume has, has been already a long day with a lot of screen time. <laughs> uh, so by God, we've made esteemed audience wait long enough. Let's hear this flying saucer story. All right. I have to tell you, first of all, that it is true. What I'm about to tell you is true. And um, if my if my 78-year-old mother were here, she she would corroborate it with me because she was with me at the time. Um, and we often talk about it when, when people bring up UFOs. So um, I was probably eight years old and my mom and I were driving to Framingham from Newton Highlands on Route 9. And we looked up in the sky and I remember it was around like this, like it was sort of at this level from my eyesight. So it was sort of directly in front of me and low in the horizon. And we saw a flying saucer 
hand to God, totally honest. And it was just what you would think a flying saucer would look like. It was, looked like, you know, looked like a bowl or two bowls sort of like stacked onto each other. And my mom said, what is that? And I said, what is that? And we pulled over to the side of the road um, and so did a ton of other cars. So we weren't the only ones who saw it. And a lot of people got out of their cars and we were looking at this flying saucer and um, we watched it and it just kind of like hovered and then it kind of went and then we um, all found, went back into our cars and we drove to, um, to phone booths and we drove to a phone booth and called the police and said, we just saw this thing. And they said, we're getting calls from everywhere about it. We'll give us your number and we'll call you back. And they never called us back, but um, we don't, I don't know what it was. I mean, it's just being like a logical person. It's, it could have been a, maybe, maybe a blimp. Like maybe it was. A blimp um, off like. <laughs> yeah, you did, that doesn't make sense, right? Like it, maybe it was something earthly that we just had never seen before, but, it, but that's, that's what we experienced. So that, that's my, that's my flying saucer story. People don't always believe me when I tell it, but it's true. Oh, I 100% believe you. <laughs> uh, there's, I, I used to flirt back and forth when I asked this question about maybe I believe, maybe I don't. I don't bother with that anymore. I 100% believe. <laughs> I mean, I'm open-minded to the – sorry, my earphone's falling out of my ear. I'm, I'm open-minded to the possibility that it looked like a UFO and was something else. But um, my mother and I are both feel pretty – confident that it was a flying saucer <laughs> <laughs> well throughout 2020 it's gotten buried under all the uh, all the other headlines the pentagon has been steadily confirming the existence of flying saucers so this is <laughs> this is the See? time 2020 it's where everything unravels that's uh, where we where we find out that the simulation was was actually a simulation all along. Ah, that makes sense. <laughs> it was getting a little unbelievable toward the end anyway, so fair enough. <laughs> I will. I hope we discover that. That would be great. Um, yeah, no, I, it's, it's a fantasy of mine that we'll discover that it's a simulation when we're tired of, of, of this, and now we can go on to another reality and start a new game. Good times. <laughs> Sounds like it's time. <laughs> it's getting there. Time to start a new game. <laughs> I keep uh, thinking about the original version of SimCity, uh, and when you got bored with building your city, you could you turn on the disasters, and I feel like that's where we're at with our simulation. Oh, I know, but maybe it's with those disasters where we can build something better. So maybe maybe we're not quite done yet. This gives us a chance to re rebuild in ways that are healthier for people, I hope. Ah, your mouth to the simulation master's ears. I, I hope that's what we're doing. <laughs> uh, and you, you lucky duck, not only have you seen a flying saucer, you've got ghost stories to share as well. Is that right? Yeah, I do. I have some ghost stories, but they're not as good as the flying saucer story. So maybe we'll just maybe we'll just leave it at the flying saucer. I can't. I can't hope <laughs> for a little bit. <laughs> All right. It's it's weird. It's a little weird, though. So, oh, we like weird. You like weird? All right. Um, I have had the experience of having dreams where um, people who have recently died have come and, like, told me 
messages to give to people. And there, it happens in, it's happened three times um, in dreams. And so it's, again, could just be a dream, you know, like dreaming about the people who died, or maybe it's, or maybe it's really real. So I, I don't really know. But each time it's happened to me, I've given, I've given the message that happened in my dream to the person just in case it was true. That's my, those, that's my ghost story. It's not really a ghost story. It's more like a, I've had, I've had some interesting dreams that, that seemed like maybe they were messages from people, but whether or not they were, it seemed like a good idea to tell the person that they were about what the dream was about. And the people that received those messages, did they make good on them and their life was made better as a result? I don't really know. One time, one time it was, um, one time it was sort of like a message of forgiveness. I, I don't know what, and I don't really know what people do with the, what people have really, how they've reacted about uh, with these. So I, I don't really know. <laughs> Listen to me. I'm so greedy. I just, you've this incredible <laughs> I know, novel. I'm just kind I of just, embarrassed. <laughs> <laughs> I've just read and enjoyed your wonderful novel. We've gotten to talk about it. And I, and now I want ghost stories. <laughs> it's never enough. <laughs> it's not really a ghost story. The, the UFO story was a real UFO story. The ghost stories are more like weird dreams. Fair enough. <laughs> well, once the, uh, again, once the simulation is revealed, everything will line up and make sense. And be, oh, of course. So that, that, that all yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Well, my uh, last question for you, um, and, and then I'll let you go, because I appreciate you being such a, a, an amazing and wonderful guest this evening and being so gracious with your time. Thank you. Um, my uh, last question is always some variation of if you could get in that DeLorean time machine and go back uh, wherever you want uh, at some point in your earlier career and give yourself some uh, advice that would have made things easier for you and that might make things easier for all the writers uh, who are listening to us now. What would you go back and say to yourself? Oh, that's an easy one. Don't give up. It's going to happen. And I think that that's a message that all writers need to hear <laughs> that if you just keep on trying it's you're going to you're going to get there then some stock tips and you'd be set <laughs> <laughs> uh, Marcella Pixley where can esteemed audience find you online purchase all your books follow you on twitter all that good stuff um uh you can find me on facebook at um marcella pixley you can go to my website at marcellapixley.com and you can find me on Twitter at at Marcella Pixley. And as always, esteemed audience, uh, head to middlegradeninja.com for interviews with hundreds of literary agents, editors, wonderful authors, folks you'd find interesting. Um, download your free copy of Banneker Bones and the Giant Robot Bees. And God willing, I'm alive. I'll see you next week.